Hello and uh, welcome to the Institute for Government. Um, welcome to our uh, not quite Dragon's Den, um, based on my slight nervousness about intellectual property and trademark issues. But uh, basically that's what we're doing uh, today. So we're absolutely delighted that we've managed to assemble a very distinguished cast list of people to pitch some of the options that people in think tank world have been developing for the, uh, over the last few months for trade after Brexit. Uh, we did invite Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May to come, but they, for some reason, decided to make their speeches somewhere else. So they're not here, but you will see, uh, see sort of options that come close, if not exactly mirror, uh, what Jeremy Corbyn was saying yesterday and what Theresa May may or may not say on Friday. And indeed, she may be watching the live stream now to work out what she should say on Friday. We very much hope that people in number 10 are. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm the Programme Director at the Institute for Government for Brexit. And just to explain to you what's going to happen. So I am joined on the stage by my dragons, in inverted commas. On my left, I have Ali Renison. Ali, if you've been interested in trade debate at all over the past, uh, past year or so, you cannot fail to know Ali Renison from the Institute of Directors. Uh, Ali is head of Europe and trade policy at the Institute of Directors and has become a leading commentator on options and indeed now is a proponent of her own option, but she's going to hold back on that until the end. And on my right, very delighted to welcome Ruth Lee. Uh, Ruth is uh, an advisor at the Arbuthnot Banking Group, which has a very distinguished career in economics, uh, both in government, uh, in think tanks, in the media and outside. Uh, so they're going to, uh, going to be our dragons. So the way this is going to work, I hope, she said, is we have our five pitchers. Uh, they are going to come and pitch for five minutes and tell us what their option is, uh, why it's good for the UK. Uh, and in particular, I think this is particularly interesting this week, because maybe this has had rather less emphasis than it might have done, why this is sellable to the EU, given some of the things that we've been hearing. So if Monsieur Barnier is watching on the live stream in Brussels, uh, we're going to try and convince him as well that these are the best way forwards. Uh, our dragons are going to ask, open up and ask a few very telling and searching questions. And then it's going to be over to you uh, to ask your own questions. So do be thinking. And if anyone is in the overspill room, uh, they'll have to duck their head around the corner. So we'll take a couple of questions on each of those options. We're going to give 15 minutes to each, uh, to each pitch. And then at the end, we're not asking you to vote because for some of you that might be slightly career-ending. Uh, this is on film. It's being live-streamed, and our friends from Channel 4 are here as well. So if you're a civil servant, think very carefully about how you phrase any question. And you know, But if you want to join in and tweet, if you want to give thumbs up, thumbs downs, or whatever, hashtag IFGBrexit, we're live tweeting as well. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, so without further ado, I'm going to invite our first pitch. And the person who has uh, accepted the challenge of going first is Stephen Booth, who's Director of Policy and Research at Open Europe. So, Stephen, you have five minutes. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I was volunteered to go first. <laughs> I think you were volunteered, but anyway. Um, okay, so I am pitching a comprehensive free trade agreement. Um, so the first thing I would say is that Brexit is a process and not an event. 
Um, the future UK-EU relationship is likely to develop over several years and very probably in stages. But we need a proposition that is politically sustainable domestically and with Brussels for, say, 10 years from now. The domestic and external political constraints that exist now are unlikely to be the same or as great in the future. But this, this negotiation should not deprive future governments of the tools to diverge from the EU in future, i.e. the power to chart an independent trade policy and greater regular autonomy in the future. So what would a comprehensive um, free trade agreement look like? Well, we think the UK should opt for a comprehensive uh, agreement that prioritises continuity of market access for goods and the supply chain integration with the EU. This would broadly mean aligning UK regulations with those of the EU. And I think the, in the precedent here would be Switzerland, which had, has wide-ranging mutual recognition agreements for goods, where it has aligned its regulation with that of the EU. This allows it to participate in the single market for the manufacturing sectors. We don't think the UK should adopt a new formal customs union with the EU beyond the transition. It should regain the power to set its own tariff regime over the medium to long term. However, I think we need to um, be allied to the current political constraints uh, and due to those and the practical constraints predominantly uh, over the border in Ireland, I think this leaves little option other than to mirror the EU's tariffs for manufactured goods for an extended period beyond the formal transition ends in 2020. The alignment of regulations, mirroring the EU's external tariff, adopting the EU's customs code and rules of origin would overcome much of the potential border friction post-Brexit. However, UK alignment with the EU's common external tariff should be subject to mutual review and a termination clause. I think the crunch will come when either the UK is offered a trade deal, for example, with the US, or the EU were to negotiate a deal with the US over the UK's heads. I find it very difficult to believe a future government or parliament would want to sit on the sidelines while such a deal was negotiated without a say from the UK. When it comes to services, broadly, I think the UK should not commit itself to future alignment with EU regulations for services. We shouldn't seek to replicate all the existing preferential terms of the single market and accept that this will mean some new restrictions on our services trade with the EU. But services are a growing share of global trade and the UK is already a globally, globally orientated exporter, less dependent on the EU market than it is for goods. The reality is that a, single, a commitment to the single market and services too often fails, up, fails to live up to the to expectations in practice. The UK should, however, propose a deeper uh, arrangement than exists between the EU and Canada, for example. The UK should propose an expanded regime of mutual recognition and equivalence for financial services regulation. The UK should propose continued mutual recognition of professional qualifications. The UK should seek an adequacy decision uh, under the EU's data protection regime to enable the free flow of data upon which much services trade increasingly depends. The UK should also propose a liberal regime for the free movement of professionals, i.e. no cap on mode 4 services provision, i.e. the provision of services by people moving across borders. <coughs> the advantages of freedom from EU rules and services are clearer than for goods. Mark Carney has already said he thinks that the UK should make changes to financial services regulation. Philip Hammond has called for regulatory innovation in the digital technologies of the future. Neither would be possible as a rule taker from Brussels. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind that the more the UK asks from the EU, the more Brussels will understandably ask for in return. 
The EU will want the UK to follow future rules governing the so-called level playing field in many other areas such as employment law and, and the environment. I think this would be politically unacceptable and unsustainable for the UK over the medium term. Instead, the UK should commit itself to maintaining existing standards on employment protection and equivalence of outcomes for the environment, but with the freedom to set its own rules in the future based on wider international commitments. Ultimately, the post-Brexit UK-EU relationship will be dynamic, as both parties will evolve over time. The UK will always have the right to disregard EU regulations in the future and bear the consequences, even in the areas where it align seeks alignment at the outset. The question is what happens to the overall relationship when the UK or the EU opts to diverge significantly from the status quo. There is only so much divergence that any dispute mechanism now, um, uh, negotiated now can take. Future UK governments and European councils will need to periodically revisit the terms of any trade deal under the auspices of the wider political relationship. Now, why is this sellable to the EU? This, this approach would preserve mutually beneficial supply chains and help preserve the EU's large goods surplus with the UK. The UK would continue to follow the EU's regulatory framework in the most integrated sectors and subject to negotiated cooperation on data, financial services and recognition of qualifications, the UK would be excluded from the single market in services, i.e. it wouldn't have the same benefits as a member state. Now, this proposal would put some constraints on UK external trade policy in the short term to the benefit of preserving accessing goods. One second. Um, <laughs> however, it would immediately enable the UK greater freedom to regulate services, which is the bulk of our economy. Now, just the final point is that the world, the UK and the EU, will no doubt look very different from now in the mid-2020s, and future governments should be able to choose how and when to diverge from the EU's customs union and wider regulatory framework in the future. And okay. Caps it. Thank you, Stephen. <clears throat> so, questions, comments? Ali, right. questions, so. Okay. Um, shall I take them a couple of times or, or one by one? Uh, go and pitch away, right. pitch away. Okay. Questions, so, and then we'll bring in Ruth. what is the difference between mirroring one's tariff regime and a customs union? Um, I think the difference becoming, is becoming increasingly small, um, and I think we have to uh, acknowledge the political constraints that were under, i.e. the parliamentary arithmetic, um, the practical constraints in Ireland. I think the big totemic difference is that I think it's going to be much easier for a future government to diverge from the customs union in the framework of an FTA, where we mirror tariffs, than it is by formally signing a new customs union. And presumably the UKU's customs arrangements could be effectively usurped the minute the UK decides to diverge from the tariffs covered by the mirroring arrangement? Yes, clearly. I think that's the, that's the case with the regulatory alignment as well. The fact is, if the UK chooses to diverge, the EU will always have the ability to penalise us if it so wishes to. So how does this meet the commitments in the joint report on Ireland, Stephen? Well, by mirroring our tariffs, tariffs with the EU, by regulatory alignment uh, in manufacturing sectors, you could avoid rules of origin at the border, you could avoid customs checks at the border. But only while we keep that. The moment we diverge, we tear that up. So why is that good enough for the EU? Well, I think it has to be a mutual termination clause. It has to be a mutual review. I think, I think the other point to make is that I think um, a lot of the border issues are very much soluble when it comes to our trade with other countries. The big problem here is the border in Ireland, clearly. Um, and I do think that... Um, it will be easier to address that issue in isolation once we have the broad framework of a deal in place. 
Uh, Ruth? Well, exactly right, actually. We are where we are, and we know the government has already put some markers in the sand as mm. to what the relationship will be. And I'm interested to know how your sort of model fits in what the, what the, what the government is actually suggesting. After all, we know you, you talked about that uh, the process, it will be a process, not an event. But of course, we already know there are basically two stages to our leaving. One is that in March 2019, Dave Jory will be leaving the customs union. We will be leaving the single market. There is no doubt about that. But of course, as uh, the Prime Minister has made pretty clear in her Florence speech, that she wants to continue to maintain sticking with the rules and the regulations of the EU during that transition period. And that is presumably when they'll decide what sort of trade agreement we'll have with the European Union. And then once the transition period is over, then as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's open sesame. That is when any government will actually decide what it wants to do vis-a-vis -vis staying with the EU's regulations or not. So in a way, how does your model fit in with my sort of scenario of transition and then out and then having governments that will decide what they want to do? Well, I think that is, that is the reality. Um, the issue is how do you, how do, at the moment we just need to get a plan that actually works to enable us to get out. At the moment we haven't got, we're not even out, so we can't talk about the freedoms or the opportunities. Um, or or, or the, 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 the whole concept of divergence is purely academic at the moment. We actually do need to have a workable plan on day one of being out. And I think, um, but using an FTA framework, which would be obviously way beyond anything that currently exists in terms of mirroring tariffs and so on, would at least give you the tools with which future governments and future parliaments could elect to diverge more easily. Um, but I think, again, this, this would also depend on it being a managed process with the EU and actually being on good political terms in order to, to do that. And so really, would you're trying to envisage what this new trade agreement will be decided with the EU during the transition period? Yeah, I think the reality. I mean, that's really what you're. Yeah, I think at. the reality is that we are not going to have the final trade agreement organised mm. by March 2019. Oh no, we're not. Um, we're and um, I think, given the work that has to be done to replicate the existing trade agreements we have beyond the EU with third countries, again, the framework that we're suggesting would help to enable that because you'll basically be mirroring the EU's tariff mm. regime for third countries and the rules of origin, so you could triangulate accumulation. So. Supply chains. So, of those so you're, you're trying to specify yeah. what the, the, this FTA, this trade agreement, should be with the EU. It's very ambitious. Do you think it's feasible? Um, I think. Well, I think it, com it comes with it comes with trade-offs. It comes with the fact that the that the basically it, what it would um, mean to the Brexiteers is that the process mm. is going to take a lot longer than they promised. Mm. Um, it would mean that we're going to have less regulatory flexibility in some sectors than they might like. But in other sectors, such as services, we are going to have more flexibility. That's going to come with some costs, but I think the UK actually can adapt to those costs much easier on services than it can in goods. And I think the opportunities for divergence and um, the fact is we export 48% of our goods to the EU, only 37% of our services, and the services to the rest of the world are rapidly increasing. Okay. So I think that's the kind of area where we need to be have more flexibility and, and this proposal would enable that very early on in the process. Let's take a couple of questions in the audience. Anyone in the audience got a quick question? Okay, uh, we'll take, I'm embarrassed that I know the people who are asking questions. We'll take John in front of Lewis and then we'll go to George. So very quick questions. I'm Steve sorry you know me, Jill. Um, John <laughs> Peter from The Economist. Um, I, I just wanted to pursue Ruth's point. How long? I mean, CETA, nine, ten years? Um, 10,000 pages or 5,000 pages or something. I mean, we're talking about seven, eight, nine years before, before this free trade agreement is in 
force, it has to be ratified by 37 parliaments before it takes effect as well. Okay. Well, I, so, yeah, I, I don't really think. I mean, I think the problem with this deal is is the EU. I think that actually a lot of this stuff can be quite easily cobbled together from other places. I mean, this, the, the the aspect on goods is looking very much like Switzerland. We know what that looks like. The EU know what, knows what that looks like. Um, the customs arrangements effectively are main, sort of extending the status quo. In services, that's where it gets a bit more complicated. But in terms of recognising mutual qualifications, that's relatively simple. Um, and adequately, I mean, sort of looking at the data framework, that's relatively simple. The EU already does that with third countries. The really difficult bit is is how ambitious we want to be on financial services. Um, I think I'm of the view that what the industry is currently asking for is a very tough ask, and I think they're not going to get all the, all the things they'd like. Um, but I think the reality is also, if you look at what the EU regulators are saying, they accept that the UK is going to have a closer relationship than any other third country, just by definition of its size and the level of market integration that currently exists. And they also want to have some framework that acknowledges that fact and they, they don't want us to be a huge offshore financial centre with no regulatory dialogue with them whatsoever. So I think there's going to be some movement on the EU position on financial services as well. Okay, George. Um, I just identify what I think is a legal problem with <laughs> the policy of um, shadowing, the cust shadowing the EU customs tariff without being in a customs union. Uh, the problem is trade remedies. Because if you're outside, if we're not in a customs union, we have a separate trade remedies policy. You've got to, under WTO rules, you can't just follow what the EU does on trade remedies because you've got a different concept, of, you've got a different domestic injury. Uh, and unless you're in a customs union, you're not in Article 24 of GATS. So you can't, uh, you, you have to operate your own independent trade remedies policy. That means inevitably, if you're looking at solar panels or steel or all the other things that the EU imposes mm. trade remedies on, we're going to end up with different duties on those products. So the project of sticking entirely unilaterally to whatever the EU happens to set as tariffs, as far as I can see, just doesn't work. You're either in a customs union or you're, or you're not. Stephen, have you addressed that? The sort of trade uh, I, I haven't addressed that in detail. Um, <laughs> But I think, and I, but my, 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 long, my view is that long term, I don't think we can shadow the customs union. I think the, the, the point is that I think politically we are where we are, as Ruth said. Uh, and I don't see anything that doesn't sort of look like that for the, top, for the, for the short to medium term. Um, there's nothing that stops us um, collectively agreeing with the EU that we're going to shadow them. Um, in WTO law. There's nothing that stops us coordinating our rules of origin with the EU on WTO law. Um, the issue of um, uh, anti-dumping and so on, we'd obviously have to, that would be something that looks, looks into further. Okay, so one very quick last question, then we're going to move on to the next one. So, yes. So I'm still kind of struggling with the... Can you tell us who you are? Ah, yeah. So I'm, I'm Ruben. I, I'm working for IBM currently, but I used to work for the European Commission yeah. in, in, in DG Trade. Um, so I'm still kind of struggling with the difference between a customs union and your mirroring of tariffs, especially because you say some sectors and some not. So you're saying that if, I don't know, like the industrial sector were to mirror it more closely, we keep that, mm. but you wouldn't with others, which to me sounds like cherry-picking, which... I don't see how the EU would, would ever okay. agree to that. Okay, are you cherry-picking? Uh, we all know the EU yeah, hates cherry-picking. Yeah. yeah, we're cherry-picking. The 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 every, everyone cherry-picks. Um, the question is, does the EU uh, accept the cherries that we're picking and what the price is and everything else? <laughs> <laughs> okay, Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Okay, so we've heard the, uh, the vision for a comprehensive free trade 
agreement uh, where we sort of gradually take apart and maybe take quite a long time to get towards an end state. Now I'm delighted to invite to the stage Hugo van Randwijk from EFTA for UK, a grassroots organisation. Many of you will follow on Twitter. Hugo's uh, also done work for the Bruges Group and he's going to make the case for that off-the-shelf uh, option that Michel Barnier said is available, staying in the European economic area. Hugo. Thank, thank you, Madam Speaker and uh, fellow Dragons, for a kind invitation. Uh, yes, I'm proposing that we part the uh, bespoke trade <laughs> agreement um, with the EU for two years from March next year and switch to EFTA EA membership. And before we start, I just wondered, has anybody here seen the EFTA website? <laughs> Have you seen the emoji by any chance? Yeah. <laughs> or Googled EFTA seminars? The 27th of February 2017, there's some very good PowerPoint presentations. Um, okay. So, why switch to FDEA when, when the vote was to leave the single market, was to leave the EU, was to control immigration? So, I think there's a number of reasons. Faster benefits for the economy, strategy, tactics. Um, Britain's typical role in Europe for the last 200 years has been to restore self-government in Europe and ensure a balance of power in Europe. And also, I think, faster economic growth and being the change that we'd like to see in the world. Okay, so, what's the, what's the EA? If you want to join the EA, you need to be a member of the EU and, and, and EFTA, European Free Trade Association, which is Norway, Switzerland, well, Norway, Iceland, and Liechtenstein. So what freedoms would you have as an FTA member? You make your own FTAs, free trade agreements, no customs union. You sit on the, vote, sit on the WTO, vote on uh, world organizations, make regulations which then get passed to the EEA. You control your own agriculture, fisheries, home affairs, justice, uh, and, and uh, yeah, what was I going to say? And there's no European arrest warrant, um, which is nice. You switch to the EFTA court, which is non-binding, it's non-political. Decisions are made by consensus, not qualified majority voting. Um, the accounts also get signed off by the auditors, unlike the EU, which hasn't been signed off for over 15 years. You can set your own tax rate, for instance, VAT. Uh, the Erasmus student program continues. You have input to any EEA regulations, and you can also veto them if you don't like them. 70% from the day that we switch in March to FTEEA, 70% of EU regulations stop. They only apply to 9% of the economy which actually trades with the EU. So that's like a massive reduction. It'll be like a tax cut for business. If you don't think that's important, you can go up the high street, you can ask the barbers, the restaurants, how much they export to the EU, and they'll tell you zero, nil point. Uh, and then you'll ask them if they have EU regulations, and they will say yes. <laughs> so that'll save them time and money, be good for business. Also, you control your own defense, nothing to do with the EU on the defense there. Also, you can control immigration. Liechtenstein uses Article 112 and 113 to control immigration. You can, you can use it. It's got unilateral measures. For, for example, you could say for the new, new Eastern European immigrants, they could have a one-year working visa, come here, maybe a four-year renewable, come here for a year, make money, enjoy yourself, learn, and then return. And if a company wants them to stay longer, a point system for staying longer. The rest of the EU, on a phased approach, we could say you can have free movement unless your unemployment is 7% or above, in which case new immigrants from the rest of the EU will then get a one-year visa until your unemployment is below 7%. So in other words, nobody is exporting their unemployment to the UK anymore. 
Okay, so we're going to get to the money side because the money, I think they want about 40 billion euros, something like that. I think in return for that money, I think it's fair that Britain actually asked something uh, for that. Britain's history in Europe has been to restore self-government in Europe after it's been taken away by France and by Germany. Let's be honest about that in the last 200 years. So let's choose something which the other countries can win. In Holland, uh, uh, an opinion poll showed that 56% would choose EFTA membership and FTA. The EU only got 44%. So they, we need to choose something which the other countries can actually win in referendums. So I'm proposing that Northern Europe becomes an EFTA zone. So what we do is we actually say to the EU, you can have 500 billion euros, um, 500 million euros for each, sorry, it's a bit of a difference there. Um, <laughs> If you have referendums in these different countries, like the, for EFTA, for, in Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Austria, Netherlands, Iceland, and Ireland, you can then say also that if, for instance, Netherlands, Austria, Finland, and Ireland also have referendums on switching to their original currencies, you can have another 500 million for that. Um, you can say to countries like Greece, Portugal, Spain, and, and Italy, you can have another 500 million if you have referendums, if you re restore your own currency, right? And you can, you can say, you know, if you, if you want more money, you can even go even further. And so, well, you know, I, I believe that, you know, what we need to say is that if you want this all, you can have it within, um, you can have it within one year. Um, you, can have an extra, you can have an extra five billion if the referendum is between the year after March. And if they really want more money, you can say, well, how about Bavaria having their own in, in independence <laughs> referendum? And also uh, Eastern, Eastern Germany. Actually, if you talk to people from those countries, you'd be amazed. Okay. So, what are the scenarios? Good wind up. Then. Good wind up. Okay. So, I see what we can do is we need to have something in place, whatever happens in March next year. We need to have something like what Australia has, which is a mutual recognition of goods. That can take weeks to go through the other parliaments. The EEA could go through weeks through the other, go months through the other parliaments. We need to apply using Article 56 of the EFTA Convention to EFTA. You can still be a member of them, you can still have access to their free trade agreements, which they have around the world, about 900 million consumers. And you can also email your MP to see if they can set up an EFTA all-party parliamentary group. They have one for beer and they have one for bingo. So perhaps they can have some time also for an EFTA part, part, uh, parliamentary group. And otherwise you can, you can share this website with everybody else. <laughs> okay. So Ali, what, yeah. what would your members make of this? Uh, two questions. just want to be clear. This is EFTA EEA, not just EFTA. Uh, no, it's EFTA EEA for two years after March next year. So yeah. the EEA applies in the long term or not? No, no. Because what I'm thinking is Northern Europe, if they had the referendums and we'll get a balance of power in Europe again, then once you change one thing, other things change and then we'd have a bespoke deal with whatever is happening in the rest of Europe. So then, yeah. But okay. if we don't get those referenda, then we'd stay in the EEA no, long term? No, then after that, after two years, then, then we'd, uh, then we'd so have the transition. bespoke. So we, the, the, the thing is, I think we're rushing the bespoke deal right now. They normally take seven to ten years. So it makes much more sense to then say, look, let's get 70% of what we want now, which is going to be March next year. We get that. We can control immigration. Maybe not what you want, but we can. Okay. And then... Sorry. I, I'm going I'm to leave the sort of long-term question, but even on a short-term basis, you mentioned the EFTA court being non-binding. Um, is that debate purely academic insofar as the EFTA court, by and large, follows the rulings of the ECJ? No, it does take it into consideration. 
No, it, it doesn't actually do exactly what it says, but it, it, yeah, it, it listens to what it's done. Right, okay. Yeah. And just briefly on financial services, again, this is a, a going into the EEA question. Um, how tenable, even for a few years, do you think the idea, given that Norway's most sensitive sectors are excluded from the um, uh, EEA agreement, would it be to have financial services rules coming from Brussels without a formal vote? Or would you envisage a, a mechanism for further input? Okay. Um, Particularly if the UK starts vetoing something like financial services legislation. Okay, okay. I mean, the way it works in the in, in FDA countries, when they get these regulations, if what they first of all do is they have input, then they tell them when there's a vote how they would have voted. If they're not happy, it then goes to their parliament, and their parliament can vote, and if they want to veto it, they can veto it. So when it comes to financial services, um, I believe there's, every time I talk to the FDA, FDA people, there's like hundreds of backlogs of regulations, mm. and they just go, well, we haven't vetoed it, but we're just mm. getting around to it kind of thing. Well, yeah. So, and then they try and figure out with the EU how they can implement it until it actually works for their economy because it's a one-size-fits-all. So for two years, I don't think it's going to be a problem if, if Britain says, well, we'll just delay it or just do part of it. Because that's what, that's what happens at the moment. That's what, yeah. Yeah. Financial services are a very different boat for the EU. Yeah. Well, I, I sort of accused Stephen of being too ambitious in his comprehensive <laughs> free traders. I don't think you're ambitious enough. <laughs> I mean, I, for a start, I wouldn't stay in the single market, obviously I wouldn't. But more to the point, when the government actually negotiates with the European Union about their trade, their trade agreement, which we all hope will be very beneficial, I would have thought it was almost as important, if not more important, to have something on tariffs. And yet you presumably would just dismiss that as not important. Sorry, what about the tariffs? Sorry. Um, tariffs, because obviously the, you'd stay in the single market, you presumably... No, no, EA. The, EA and single market are mm. different. It's no I know, well, put it this way, you would stay in the single market, but you'd be outside the customs union, yes? Sorry, we're, we're out of the if customs union. If you're in the EA, you'd, like be in the, you'd be in the single market, but you're out, mm. outside the customs yes, union. Yes, outside the customs union. Yes, yeah. good. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> my question is, in your model, mm. um, what would you be doing about tariffs? You know, what would you... Would you so do no we'll, common external tariff anymore. So another common so external tariff. Would you do tariffs. anything about tariffs or...? Well, no, the, the tariffs is... You've got the WTO tariffs, which will exist anyway. You've got what Norway does already, which has got tariffs around the world. Norway already has... Well, so they have, they've got preferential trade agreements with a lot of countries anyway, so that so would just kick in. So what you're saying is that being, with this trade agreement that, that is going to be negotiated with the EU, hmm. you wouldn't have any special free trade agreement with the EU on tariffs? No, that, that would be... That would be at a later stage. During the two years, yeah, you the, yeah. So I'm saying park the bespoke. Let's go 70% now. You know, burden the hands worth mm. two in the bush. Get that. Get it implemented. Get so the benefits, and then during that two years, then negotiate the bespoke. Uh, well, what about the areas that aren't covered for tariffs under the EEA agreement? So agriculture. Well, agriculture, fisheries. So we again, have, yes. We would have MFN tariffs during the transition. You'd need to, yeah. You'd you'd need you'd need to discuss that with the EU during this phase. The thing is, this needs to be agreed by 27 parliaments, mm. right? The EA is the much easiest and fastest to get agreed. Do you know, I would mm. question that because the ECJ came out with an announcement last year, an mm. adjudication last year, that for a pure trade agreement, it was actually a competence of the European Union Commission, of the EU. Yeah, but it's still got to go not through. Of the separate, not of the separate states. Okay, fine. Okay. It'll go well, even quicker it's then. It's important. It'll go I even quicker then, but I I, I'm not sure that's the case because it actually, the article that I've written actually says something in so the EA agreement, says well, something different. I rest my case. I don't think you're ambitious enough. Okay, not ambitious enough. I think we probably don't have very many farmers in the room. Uh, they might be looking a bit nervous. Any questions from the audience? So how does this... Uh, so you have, you've got tariffs, so... 
I'm going to ask my Ireland question again. Yeah. So how is the Irish border going to work? Because you've potentially got tariffs, got tariffs on agriculture. It's a massively yes. difficult issue for integration in Ireland. So how does, how does that work, even okay. in those two years, if we're in the EEA? Okay, it's a good question. I did actually suggest something to an Irish person when I was in the pub, that what we do is we just put a, a pub on the borders and we just go in one door and out the other and, and have a drink in between and be fine. And they like that idea. Um, no, I think the issue is a lot simpler than that. Norway has a border with Sweden. Norway is an FTEA, Sweden's an EU uh, yeah. a single market, and it works. They have an agreement, an arrangement, and that's how they've actually got around it. And my thinking is, if we can have these referendums in other countries, like, like Ireland, mm. like these other countries, and we have an EFTA Northern Europe zone, then I believe the problem's solved. But, it, uh, but the, you're years, making a rather a critical dependency on everybody else wanting to follow us. And so far, the well, evidence suggests that actually Brexit's had rather the opposite effect, that actually it's led to a bit of recommitment to Europe rather than the other way around. No, not, not at all, because this, these things here, I've been talking to the, the media to spread the word of the website and Google the PowerPoints for more than 11 years. You talk about fake news, it's been deliberately, deliberately kept down. I've organised opinion polls to the Bruges Group, 71% preferred FTEA to EUEA. Also, if you look at the, the most recent one, it was the, the opinion poll was 61% preferred F an FTA plus EFTA to the EU uh, model. So the, if people know about this, they might say, well, let's just go for 70% now. Let's just go for it in March, and then we'll build on that from there on. Sorry. Okay. No, not even questions? Any final questions from... No. No? Any heckling? Okay. Steve, uh, so, Sam's got it. So, no, we've got a question from here. So, Lewis... So, sorry, I, so I, one of our future participants... So, so I came in late, so you might have addressed this. How, how will you deal with the fact that Norway... They don't say it publicly, but Norway does not want us in the EA agreement. The EU does not want us in the EA agreement because essentially it's a functional agreement that works and if we were to go into it, we'd disrupt it. So um, why, where does that fit in, okay. in your, in your assessment? Okay, because this is a temporary... Yeah, I mean, what you've got, you've got a number of options here. You can become an associate member of EFTA and you become uh, a full member of EFTA. So that's, that, that's an option there. You're right. I mean, in terms of, I've talked to people in FTA, they feel like they've got a number of countries there and they feel like they kind of know each other and they works well and everything's efficient and everything like that. However, if you talk to the population, you know, who vote for the politicians, and then uh, you talk to some other people in, in, in politics there, they will actually say it'll strengthen EFTA. It will give them more clout. It'll actually boost them. Um, and, you know, especially when you do negotiations, even at WTO level and things like that, it's, it's going to be a good thing having Britain there side by side with similar attitudes to them in terms of trade. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Sam, for that question. Thank you very much, Hugo. Thank you. So now I'm absolutely delighted to welcome to the stage Victoria Hewson. Victoria is counsel to the Legatum Special Trade Commission, and I think as many of us know, Legatum... Uh, has a lot of influence on government thinking, so uh, Victoria is going to talk to us about the Legatum autonomy model for future trade relations. Victoria. Thank you. So I'd like to start by making clear that this is not a model that's been dreamed up or devised by the Legatum Institute. This could also simply be called a normal trade policy that every country in the world that isn't part of the EU or the single market operates an autonomous trade and regulatory policy where they would not accept 
um, being bound to rules and regulations imposed upon them by an external entity, subject always, of course, to their obligations under international agreements. So what does autonomy mean? And how could it be achieved in the context of a free trade agreement to minimise disruptions? So what does autonomy mean and how could it be achieved in the context of a free trade agreement with the European Union? Well, it means the UK government of the day and all of our future governments will have the right to regulate and make laws as they see fit in this country for the, either the domestic economy and domestic priorities in this country or in pursuit of trade benefits in the rest of the world. Now this might mean that we will keep on doing things the same way as the EU and keep the EU-derived regulations or we might amend or repeal some of them or develop them in a different direction once we're no longer in the EU anymore. But only if the benefits to be accrued from doing things differently outweigh the trade costs that might be incurred vis-a-vis -vis the EU, would the government of the day make that decision to proceed with, with the change? Now, we would argue that there will be many instances where the balance is tipped in that direction. The direction of travel of EU regulation has been, in many instances, um, anti-competitive, anti-innovation, prescriptive and quite onerous, especially for smaller businesses. But this model is not prescribing a bonfire of red tape, and it's not um, a model for a mass program of, of deregulation. It's a route to an open and liberalizing trade and regulatory agenda to achieve better regulation that will support productivity and innovation and consumer welfare. So how could this be accommodated in this um, future hoped-for free trade agreement with the EU that will also um, deliver continued market access and high levels of mutual recognition of regulation? Well, we think mutual recognition is in fact a natural progression of the relationship for the UK and the EU. And it's different in scale, but not in principle from the other free trade agreements that the EU has, and also from its commitments under WTO rules. WTO rules encourage, and even in some instances, compel mutual recognition of equivalent regulation. All modern advanced FTAs include um, chapters on regulatory coherence and regulatory cooperation, which are aimed at developing the respective jurisdictions towards the position of compatible regulations. They often include, in particular, mutual recognition of conformity assessment so that goods can be checked in their country of origin. The EU trade agreement with um, Canada, the CETA deal, includes quite wide-ranging provision for mutual recognition of conformity assessment across a wide range of sectors. But this um, needn't be restricted only to conformity assessment. There is also precedent for recognition by the EU of substantive regulation. For example, there is a mutual recognition agreement with New Zealand in respect of um, the, cyto uh, the sanitary measures in respect of meat and animal products. So this could be based on compatibility rather than line-by-line harmonisation. 
This model is ambitious, but we would argue it's a logical progression of WTO rules and free trade agreements that the EU is already committed to. It's an opportunity to both respect the outcome of the referendum, embrace the opportunity to pursue regulations to improve competition, innovation and consumer welfare, and take a significant step in progressing how countries with who are sovereign territories with different but compatible regulations can really progress on um, smooth and efficient trade between them and tackling the, the famous behind the border barriers. Thank okay. you. Thank you, Victoria. So, Ali, this seems to give your members everything they might want. Yeah, I'm going to go straight into agri-food. Um, <laughs> I think you'd have to acknowledge it's a huge unprecedented step to get something substantive on SBS measures across the board. Um, how do you, uh, sorry, sanitary and phytosanitary standards, so agri-food um, regulations by another name. How does one mutually recognize ones on other systems if one has a ban in place on various pesticides uh, and hormone treatment and another one doesn't? How is that mutually recognized or equivalent? So with an outright ban, that, that would clearly not be um, where one party has a ban and the other doesn't. That couldn't really work. Um, however, it can be made to work in the broader context of the wider relationship. The example here being the Trans-Tasman um, regulatory arrangement. Um, Which has mutual recognition and harmonisation in it. Because they have a common food standards agency, don't they, between Australia and New Zealand? Yeah, but it's, it's, it's harmonisation based on agreement by all the parties adhering to international standards, and it was built from a position of mutual recognition where the, where the um, countries and indeed the states within Australia have different priorities and different standards. They have different quarantine requirements um, and different seasonal requirements. So it can be done by way of... Um, I mean, clearly, if one country has, a, has banned a product, you can't sell the product to them. That's not really a matter of mutual recognition. But in terms of how, how could one deem one's systems to be equivalent, mutually, recognition, um, uh, mutually recognized, mm -hmm. if, for example, um, the UK decides that it does want to, I hate to come back to this example, does decide that it wants to recognize um, the importation of things that are banned in the EU otherwise? But this, this is where the balancing act that I described comes into play. <coughs> Because if the UK wishes for either domestic reasons to improve the, the, um, the consumer choice and value in, the, in, in food, if they wish to change our laws so that we can admit American chicken into the market, then that would be a question to determine on the balance of costs and benefits, whether the, um, the gains that you would gain in return from the US for that, in tandem with opening up our market to cheaper um, and better choice in food products, is that worth the, um, the, the loss of mutual recognition in poultry SPS measures? So we would have to have border checks in this model because we might be importing things that aren't allowed to circulate freely in the single market. So we still need regulatory checks at the asked, border. Asked another way, effectively, yeah. which we're trying to get, with, get at with Stephen, effectively, if you have customs arrangements and trade arrangements that are premised on that mutual recognition, effectively, if the UK decided it wanted to make that change, do we suddenly have an implementation period whereby those changes are then brought in? 
to the customs arrangements that, that were agreed on the basis of equivalence and mutual recognition, because it means if you have an FTA with the US where you do decide to mutually recognize or allow in the imports of things that are banned in the EU currently, and your customs arrangements with the EU that are as frictionless as possible are premised on that mutual recognition, effectively you have to have a period of time then if you're going to allow that in the deal with the US to change your customs arrangements with the EU. Just as the US and Canada do. Of course. Mm. You would always have an implementation mm. period and a consultation but period the, the before any change in law. The difference is, is that that changes not only your, your relationship with the US, but your arrangements with the EU fundamentally. So are we talking about a guillotine clause, for example, that in which if one thing falls, everything else falls? No, certainly not. We, we absolutely must avoid that kind of hair trigger safeguard provision. It would have to be the case that um, the particular product would be um, excluded from, from the market. And that's normal. How That's how um, parties to free trade agreements work. Okay, well, I'm going to ask a very basic question. I'm not going to go into the depths of mutual recognition. And that is that, is this so different from what the government is suggesting now, these three buckets of regulation? You know, the one is complete alignment, which makes some sense for trading in uh, goods, in some goods. I think that makes, I do think that makes some, to keep, stick to the standards is, is sensible. And they are talking about mutual recognition as well. And then they're talking about managed diversions. Mm. I mean, does your model sort of, or you said it wasn't a model, your ideas, do they reasonably fit in with what the government is suggesting? Well, it's hard to say yes because no. we don't Go have... On. That's the sort of answer I always give. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have complete clarity on what the government's position after the meeting last week actually is. Neither does the government. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> all be clear on Friday. I would, I, would I would hesitate to endorse um, a, a model that set out a priori different buckets and, and ways of dealing with different products and sectors, because that seems to me to preempt the, um, the decision making down the line, because we don't know how the interests and priorities in any sector are going just to develop. Get, get, get going, so to speak, the three buckets. And when I first heard about them, I thought they were absolutely bizarre. Actually, I do now see the, the reasoning behind it. But I will make one final comment before throwing it over to the audience. I'm sorry, you're the chairman. Um, is that when, when Donald Tusk heard about the, the sort of quasi-agreement at the Chequers last week, he said it was the British government was a complete illusion are we in, in a, is this all our ideas about three buckets, etc., etc.? Is that a complete illusion? But you don't know. What I'm, do you not, think? I'm not going to comment on the buckets. I think the, I, <laughs> I, I assume that um, he was broadly ruling out the whole idea of having um, a managed divergence with broad mutual recognition, which in some ways he would say that, wouldn't he? It's a, it's a negotiation. I think um, all parties to a negotiation at the outset seek to talk up their own position. Um, but as I say, there is lots of precedent where the EU has agreed to mutual recognition in many areas. So this is simply, um, as I say, a difference in, in scale rather than in principle. So it's only partly illusionary then? No. <laughs> Illusion, delusion. Anyway, let's, uh, let's see if there are any questions in the audience about this to Victoria. Let's take uh, here and then we'll go there. Yeah. Uh, good day. Tell us who Good day, Martin Keegan. Um, you mentioned the Australian uh, arrangements with New Zealand. Um, being from Australia myself, I noticed that the High Commissioner from Australia uh, spoke about 
a trade-off between uh, external trading uh, relations and internal regulation uh, of, of product and, and service and goods markets and labour markets. Um, in what you said, and I don't remember the exact words, so I tried to memorise it, uh, you said the UK might choose to diverge in some regulatory area, but would take into account the trade impact that that might have a guillotine or, or whatever it is the way if Switzerland doesn't take regulation, they get into severe trade difficulties. Do you think that the, the trade impact should always predominate and um, how, would you, how would you weigh it up? Do you think that the trade should always wag the dog of internal regulation? Or do you think that uh, sometimes you know, we should say, well, we are going to take a hit with trade here because we can regulate more efficiently internally? Yeah, absolutely. Sometimes the, the balance will be tipped depending on the, the circumstances at the time. But it's certainly fair to say that while border costs are a significant um, concern to all businesses, they can be outweighed exponentially by gains from pro-competitive regulation behind the border. Okay, yes. Hi, I'm Dan Turnbull from the City of London Corporation. Um, all the examples that you gave from existing FTAs refer to goods. Do you propose the same model for services, including financial services? That's a, that's a very good point. N no, not the same model, but by analogy, the same principle of UK autonomy would apply. The process for mutual recognition in services is different. We would propose a model for financial services of um, deference to home state regulators in suitable sectors, um, which is very much the model being pursued by, um, well, by yourselves with the IRSG, UK finance and, and others. And that's probably a model that could be applied more widely to other services sectors and to highly regulated goods as well. Again, it's a negotiation. You, you, we might not get it. It's never going to replicate passporting, but in many respects, we probably don't need a full replication of passporting anyway. Yeah. Alex. I just want to come in quite yeah. quickly there because, correct me if I'm wrong, having read the IRSG proposal, if for all intents and purposes, I look at it as being very akin to passporting in one fundamental dimension, which is that it wouldn't you would, it would obviate the need to have a physical presence in an EU member state or an EE, in an EEA mm. member state. So that, that to me is very similar to what the idea of what passporting in a principled way is all about. So it's not that different in terms of what's being put forward in terms of the, at least the market access. It's, um, it's legally different, but it delivers a, sort of a similar benefit in terms of not needing to be um, physically located and regulated and capitalized in the host state. Okay, sounds keen to go in. Sorry, I know I'm going to read what I say when I present, <laughs> but um, my question is on, on specifically on mutual recognition because you've been talking about it a lot as a viable um, approach. But isn't the problem you face that the only examples globally of mutual recognition along the lines as you've proposed it, which is that we might have different approaches but we accept each other's products as equivalent for the purpose of importing. The only two areas where that has worked is within the EU and in the New Zealand-Australia Tasman Mutual Recognition Agreement. And both come with shared institutions, both eventually led towards harmonisation because it didn't work, and both pushed towards a single market. The New Zealand-Australia can be seen as an embryotic version of the single market. And the examples you gave of the EU as precedent, so all mutual recognitions of conformity assessment, and the EU-New Zealand agreement isn't actually a mutual recognition agreement, it's an exchange of letters where they identify areas where equivalents could be appropriate. So 
the model you're proposing doesn't currently exist without overarching architecture and institutional structures. Why do you think it will? So I'll just correct you. The New Zealand Meat Agreement is a mutual recognition agreement. Um, it was signed in 1997. It was updated 10 years later by an exchange of letters that added to the sectors that were covered. Um, however, I do agree. We would certainly need institutional structures to support this arrangement. So, Victoria, any sign that people on the other side of the channel are buying this? I mean, clearly it's got a lot of... A uh, lot of support within government for this sort of approach, whether it ends up as buckets or not buckets. But are you getting positive vibes from anyone in Europe that they're keen on this next evolution of the single market? I think what will be key is when the negotiations actually start and the commercial interests and the member state level interests start to make their voices heard. Because we've already seen, actually I read a report mm. just today from um, Germany, the German... Um, in, in, in Unshandelskammer, the um, Chamber of Commerce, I suppose you would call it, has done a report on the, the losses that German businesses are already seeing. So I suspect as the, um, the cold reality starts to bite, then um, we will see more receptiveness to these kinds of proposals. Okay, thank you very much, Victoria. And now with another take on potentially something that looks a bit like buckets, but not quite. Uh, we've got Tom Kibazi, who's the director of the Institute for Public Policy Research, uh, to pitch uh, somewhere, a sort of fusion of Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May, maybe, uh, the idea for a shared market. Tom. Thank you very much. I mean, that in introduction wasn't quite right, but I'll come to that in a moment. So I'll, I'll start by just saying IPPR didn't take a position during the referendum campaign. I personally supported Remain because I thought it was in the best interests of the country, and I stand by that position. Um, in my mind, Brexit uh, is a movement that has largely been led by the ageing sons of eminent fathers, um, who, uh, <laughs> and is perhaps best understood as a psychological condition rather than a political position. Um, but above being a pro-European, uh, I am a Democrat, and for that reason, I don't think you can have a plebiscitary moment and ignore it. And so the position that we've been working towards is one that represents the 70% of people who say we should honour the referendum result uh, without wrecking the economy. So it's not a position that works for the 15% who want to stay in the EU under all circumstances. It doesn't work for the 15% who want to crash out in a hard Brexit. It works for the 70% uh, in between. Now, it's imperfect, and this process of interrogation this evening will probably expose that, <laughs> Um, but it is imperfect, but it is the least worst option in our view. And it's the least worst because in our view, um, the challenges of the 21st century are going to be solved by collaborating more with our neighbours, not less. So the proposal really comes down to two pillars. And all of our proposals are actually built on precedent, so already exist in parts of agreements uh, with the EU. So pillar one is regulatory alignment of the UK and the single market. Now, what we say is that you've got to allow for the possibility of divergence over time, the possibility, but your objective should be convergence. So not manage divergence, but the objective of convergence, but allowing for the possibility of divergence. And the reason that's really important is to answer the demand of leave voters for sovereignty. And so we think that the option of the EEA is insufficient uh, because we think that doesn't honour um, the push for sovereignty. But we're really, really clear the objective is convergence 
not divergence. The second part of the proposal is then a comprehensive, a new and comprehensive customs union uh, with the European Union. And we understand there are complexities in that. It actually involves uh, a parallel approach to trade. It's not as straightforward as simply saying you can have a customs union, it's all simple. So it is quite a complicated arrangement that would need to be put in place. We think that uh, those two pillars need to be built on a new UK supervision authority, uh, a UK court of justice, and a compromise on free mo movement of people. So uh, when we look at the evidence, what we find is even Leave supporters understand that you won't simply pull up the drawbridge. Actually, there is much more room for compromise. The EU has compromised in the past with Switzerland, uh, with Liechtenstein, and with Ukraine. Uh, we think the Swiss compromise is probably the best for the UK. We also think that there are some processes that can be put in place. Uh, so a declaration of incompatibility, giving both sides the time to realign their regulatory regimes, um, and a process we call reverse succession. So what that really means is saying that the, the benefits and burdens need to be in alignment, that there is a proportionality. So if there is divergence, that there are a proportionate set of consequences in terms of access to the single market. In the past 10 days, Labour has adopted our position on a new and comprehensive customs union. Uh, thank you very much to, the, to, to Jeremy Corbyn for doing that. Uh, and the government appears to have adopted our position on regulatory alignment to the single market. So if the two sides could come together, they've reached the shared market and we think we've got a deal. Um, in fact, uh, three EU ambassadors that I saw said, I'll shake your hand on that kind of arrangement right now. So I do have a sense that it's in private. There is some enthusiasm for this arrangement. So why go for this? Well, firstly, public support for regulation is really strong. We released some polling last week, and what we found in that polling uh, was that vast majority, the vast majority of people want the uh, standards that already exist in the EU to be retained or made stricter. So support for deregulation, the fantasies of some of my colleagues elsewhere, are in the single digits. So let's be clear where the public stand. Secondly, it addresses the... Uh, the uh, uh, Irish border problem, and it enables frictionless trade both in Ireland but also with our European partners. The next is there's no evidence that agility trumps scale, so this fantasy that somehow we'll go off around the world and negotiate all these great free trade deals um, that will be wholly to our advantage and not to the advantage of others um, is a fantasy. Um, the next thing that we think about is actually that in the 21st century, the real issue is non-tariff barriers. Actually, the average tariff barrier between the EU and the US is 1.6%. So it sort of confirms this, this sort of um, free trade fantasy is precisely that. But finally, and I'll end on this point because I know that we need to get to the questions. And this is the really crucial point to my mind. You are often presented with a choice uh, in this process and you're told the choice is between a European Britain Britain that is orientated towards the single market and the continent. And on the other side, the choice is a global Britain that trades around the world. That is not the real choice, right? Actually, in the last 15 years, UK trade with the single market has declined by about a percentage point a year, every year for around 15 years, from around 60% to around 44, 45%. And the reason for that is that as the EU has struck trade deals around the world, it has 50 deals around the world, it has internationalised British trade. So the real choice is between a Britain that trades with its European partners and around the world, and the alternative choice, which is a parochial Britain that can no longer access uh, preferential agreements, not only on the continent, uh, but all around the world. And so that's the, the, the place where I'd end, just... Remember the choice. It's not European or global. It's European and global or parochial.
Okay, so Ruth. So Tom. So Ruth, you're a Leave voter. Does that do it for you? Because Tom thinks that you could be part of his great coalition supporting uh, supporting this way forward. I think Liam Fox would be very disappointed to hear what you've just said. He's, he's gone 290,000 miles around the world trying to think of the, all these trade deals that you've happily dismissed. Um, so you really don't think there's be much scope, I mean, this is a question, you really don't think there'd be much scope for extra trade deals if we're out of the customs union? And I think the other implication is, of course, you're dismissing any possibility of our being able to change the external tariffs so we might actually benefit some of the uh, consumers in this country. Um, and I think this, the, th the third thing I would say is that you mentioned all these 50 trade deals the EU's done. They're pretty pathetic. They really are pretty pathetic. And th there's only one or two of them that really matter to this country. Uh, one of them is with Switzerland, and I think the other one's with South Korea. But there are no tra trade deals that the EU has done, to my knowledge, with Australia or New Zealand or indeed the United States of America. It's just about managed Canada. Nothing for Japan, nothing for China, whereas a lot of the EFTA countries have got, have got trade deals. It's with about to finish countries. one with Japan. We're going to get some yeah. questions. Uh, nothing yeah. with Japan so far, nothing with Japan so far. So. So indeed, you know, you, you've, you've sort of swept away yep. the, the whole uh, whole raison d'etre for Liam Fox and his department. So you're doing it for and, so, it just strikes so, me, so one of the one of the real joys about Liam Fox um, is the extent, to, and there are many joys, um, is the extent to which he's shifted his own position. So Liam Fox in 2012 gave a wonderful speech to the Taxpayers Alliance, and Liam Fox set out very clearly and articulately. Um, why it was really important that Britain left the EU but remained in a customs union with the European Union and remained in the single market. Did so Liam Fox today happens to not agree, well, but Liam Fox um, yesterday said, might, have, might have agreed. Forget what he said then. Forget what he said then. What's yeah, he saying sure. now? Sure, what he's, he's saying, saying now that it is very important to do these trade deals. So are you just dismissing what he's saying now? Yes. Or dis indeed yes, dismissing? I'm absolutely <laughs> dismissing what he said. Um, okay. Liam Fox has a really important Liam Fox has a terrifically important role to play. He's a trained GP. I think he has a contribution uh, to uh, the public realm that could be Liam dealing Fox with our long waiting times and waiting lists in the NHS, Liam and I think that's probably where his skills I, and talents are I best deployed. I defend Liam Fox. We share a birthday. <laughs> Can I? But joking so, apart, I think for you to simply dismiss all these possibilities and new trade deals is, what should we say, bold. Okay. Well, let's, let, me, let me answer that. Right. I think the, the crucial point in this, right, there's some recent analysis that shows that even if we struck these kind of deals with the BRICS and the Anglosphere, you might get an uplift in trade of around 5%. If we have restrictions on access to the single market, we're looking at a reduction in 20%. And the reason for that is that 90%... Well, can, I, can, I, can I finish my point, please, Ruth? 90% of our economy is services. And we know that for services... Services are fundamentally a people, a people business. Services are fundamentally a people business that rely on relationships. The reason I know that is that Liam Fox may have travelled 283,000 miles. I checked before I came here. In the last 10 years, I travelled a million miles um, around the world in working so in a working in working in uh, a high-value uh, services business. And the crucial point is that fundamentally. These are people-based businesses, and that's why the gravity model takes you towards uh, the people that are closest to you. Why on earth would you cut off your ability to trade with the market that is so large and so close uh, in order to go around? Who's cutting it off? 
Let's. Uh, it's nonsense. Okay, but you're reducing your access. You're definitely reducing I'm, some access. So I'm, let's I'm, go to. I'm going to um, leave the customs question, customs union question for Sam. Um, uh, on the trade policy dimension. Um, on the alignment for the shared market on goods and services, or just yeah, goods, goods, goods and, and services? And services. Um, so there is a question in there about financial services, but I'll come back to it in a minute. Yeah. Um, if by the distinction that you seem to be intimating, alignment and convergence being different to mutual recognition and managed divergence, does that effectively mean that you are accepting EU rules with the proviso that directives are already tinkered with in terms of their actual wording? Does that mean effectively that you are taking the EU's rules rather than trying to negotiate with the mutual rec mutually recognised outcomes? Yeah, so for, for the most part, we, we, we think that overall it's more in our interest uh, to take the rules but allow the, the ability to diverge if we really think it's problematic for our economy, but also being realistic. Because Britain would have this possibility of divergence, it does lead to some uh, extent, the extent to which the EU actually has to take regard of in creating new rules, would they tip the UK into a position of choosing to diverge? And we think just as we have a collaborative relationship today, or at least we did until the, the referendum yeah. passed, um, that we could rebuild the collaborative relationship yeah. in the future. Yes, it's not going to look exactly like it does today. We're not going to have the same degree of influence as we do today, but we want to be in the room and shaping that regulatory regime. But absolutely, this is, these are common problems and they require um, common solutions. You, just a quick one, yeah. um, because yeah. there was, and, and I'm sure someone like George will quote me on the exact reference in Corbyn's speech, does that extend to having any exemptions, quote unquote, with respect to procurement obligations and around state aid? Well, I, I've yet to see the evidence that those are necessary. I, I cannot see the evidence that has, has been put to me by anyone uh, that you can't do all the things that were in the Labour 2017 manifesto whilst being a member of the EU. One of the reasons that I know that it's possible to be um, further to the left than the UK is today is that the UK is about 39% of GDP is, the gov is government spending. Western European average somewhere in the mid-40s. Denmark itself in the mid-50s. There's actually an awful long way you can go um, further to the left and a greater role for the state and the economy uh, before you get to a point where you're beyond um, where, where existing EU member states are. So if we're going to become a society that is further to the left than Denmark, where a majority of uh, the economy is government spending, um, then, then maybe it's a debate that needs to be had at that point. But I think we're a very, very long distance away from that. And I see absolutely no, no reason to... Uh, to, to believe that it will be impossible. So, Tom, why is being under a new UK court and having a sort of new surveillance authority better than being under the European Commission and the ECJ? Well, I think, I think part of this is, is recognising the desire to be outside of a set of structures that, uh, in terms of their legitimacy within the UK, have been uh, significantly challenged and the scope of their responsibilities have been challenged. So we think that it's probably a necessary step to propose these new institutional um, structures. Uh, there is a discussion about whether docking into the EFTA court could be an alternative. I think that could be an alternative. We hosted um, Carl Baudenbacher, the president of the EFTA court. I think we all have. <laughs> yeah. And I think uh, he, he's an interesting guy. And I, I think, I think his, his, what he make, he sort of, the case he makes on docking is actually a reasonable point and and I think that would be an alternative arrangement. So, so it could work with a, with a slightly different institutional arrangement. We think this one is important in part because Brexit was a um, symbolic vote about the symbols of control and the symbols of independence. And to some extent, it's, it seems reasonable to acknowledge that in the institutional architecture. 
Okay, any questions on this one? Uh, yes, go there. Lewis is here, and then we'll come forward here. Thank you. So the moment you diverge with the Tell EU... Oh, um, Mark Pickard, I, I work for um, Dexu, but this oh, right, is entirely okay. in a personal capacity. Okay. Um, so Don't worry, we can't see you. In, indeed. I mean um, a lot of people like you. <laughs> Uh, so the moment you diverge with the EU, even on one particular product, perhaps in a specific area, you then arguably need customs checks. So in a world uh, between deciding on implementing a bad regulation that we can't influence uh, from Brussels uh, yeah. and having sort of customs checks, how, how do you decide between those two, uh, two unfavourable outcomes? Well, so you'd have to have a debate about it, but you're absolutely right. This is one of the reasons why we don't think the objective should be divergence. We think the objective should be convergence, precisely because as soon as you start to diverge, you have to put in, put in place uh, compliance checks and you create problems on the Irish border. So it, it does show that this is a, an, an approach that we think will be relatively stable um, for those reasons. Now, the, the, the level of change would have to be of an order of magnitude that would make it worth the cost. Um, uh, but I think that is the reality with any, any trade agreement, that you're, you're having to make an assessment of the, of the benefits and, uh, and burdens. So in that example, um, that's exactly the kind of debate that we would, we would have. And no doubt the Brexiteers would tell us that we should diverge at every opportunity. Um, and uh, people like me would be explaining how it's all going to be absolutely But is fun. that that different to what Victoria was suggesting, which is effectively you make that decision as and when? Well, so our, our difference is that, is that we don't have an objective of divergence and we don't say that we want this to occur. I don't think we, she did either. We, the, the argument that we make is that, is that you should have a process that you, you carry out with the EU where the, the benefits and the burdens are aligned and there's a proportionate set of consequences. So, for example, if you were to... If the EU were to say well, we want to do a, a Tobin tax, we have a financial transactions tax, we might say, well, clearly that's going to really harm the city of London we could make a choice that said, okay, well, we're going to diverge. They would say, okay, well, proportionate consequences, no more passporting, you're outside of the European regime. And we'd have to make an assessment whether it was in our interest to adopt the Tobin tax or to, or to lose, lose passporting, in, as an example. So we would hope that you would never get to that point, but the purpose of this kind of agreement would be to provide a structure and a process um, to, to work together to avoid that. Okay, let's go... Yeah. My name is Torbjörn Solström. I'm the Swedish ambassador to the UK. So in a way, I represent a different sort of dragon here. Uh, <laughs> we should have had you on the panel, Torbjörn, but anyway. But I, Please, I, take my place. My, 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 <laughs> my question has partly been asked, but uh, perhaps if you could uh, say a couple of more words on, on the mechanisms that you think need to be put in place to, to reach convergence and to avoid yeah divergence when it comes to alignment and single market relationship. Yeah. Can I just add, I'm particularly interested in how you assess what a proportionate loss of access is for a divergence. Who, who does that and how does that happen? Yeah, so I, I, maybe I should take that point first. So, um, as I said before, the, the proposal that we've put together is based on precedents. One of the precedents that we've taken uh, is the DCFTA with Ukraine. And the way that that operates is that as Ukraine aligns itself, its regulatory regime to the single market, it progressively unlocks the single market. So what we're saying is that we think in terms of the proportionality, you could have effectively a process of reverse succession where if the UK diverged, it would be progressively locked out of the single market. So you would mirror the same process with Ukraine in this agreement, um, and, and that's why we call it reverse succession rather than, yeah. than accession in, in order to determine the level of 
uh, proportionality. We think you need independent supervision, so the constitution of our UK supervision authority um, would be international for precisely that reason, uh, because we don't think you can. So international, non-EU, non-UK. So it's it would be Canadians, basically. It, well, no, it would be. It would be. It would be comprised of, of pro probably. But we're sort of open mind about this. Probably some UK, uh, some EU, and and maybe some EFTA states to, to make sure no the one. The ECJ would have to recognise its authority, which has been an issue in the past with. Well, but the, 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 there are the, there are different the questions FSA. about. Yeah. So this would only have authority mm. within the UK. So right. it wouldn't have it within okay. within within it's the EU, where there would be the ECJ, um, and, and then you'd have the UK Court of Justice in order to make decisions in a similar way. So you've got some independent oversight and scrutiny and, and independent decisions. Then what we'd say is that you want the agreement to be dynamic. So one of the big concerns mm. that the EU has is, is a static agreement like there is with Switzerland, which becomes extremely complicated. And so the proposal was that it would be dynamic. And so as either side moves its regulatory regime, it's also possible that you could have regulatory innovation here, where actually the EU said, fantastic move here, it's, it's creating um, entrepreneurship and, uh, and, and improvements, and actually they choose to align with, with us. So you allow for that possibility. And then we say you'd have a dec if there was a case where the regulations appeared to be out of line you'd have a declaration of incompatibility. That would then give each side the chance to uh, discuss that, assess it, see if there were remedies and resolutions that could be, could be implemented, were there ways that you could adapt the approach in order to resolve it. If not, that would then trigger um, the proportionate set of, uh, set of uh, consequences, which, as I say, we take from the DCFTA with Ukraine. Okay, we've got two questions. I'm going to take very, very quickly. And quick answers uh, from Tom, if you can. So just two people. Yeah, George, you want to? Yeah. And then, yeah, you too. And then we'll move on to Sam. Yes. Uh, a very short question. What do you think um, institutionally is the big difference between what you're proposing and the mechanisms of the EEA with its EFTA court surveillance authority and also possibility for action to be taken if the EFTA, the EEA 3 don't accept yeah. uh, a, a regulation which the EU reg reg regards as one that they should accept. Okay. Yeah, I, so, so in terms of the institutional similarities are very significant, mm. that's absolutely true. I think as Sam pointed out I, earlier, you know, I think the EU is, it, the, the EEA states are relative, and the EU are relatively sceptical about disrupting an agreement that already works. So in a sense, um, given just the scale of the UK and how it would dwarf other states in the EEA and the sovereignty issues that I think it presents, we think that one of the costs you'd have to bear will be setting up these new institutional structures just as they were set up um, uh, uh, for, the, for, for EFTA. And, and so, yeah, I mean, they, they look much more similar. And in a way, that's one of the precedents we use is to look at those structures and say, actually, this could become part of the arrangement okay. we propose. Final question to Tom. Jigar uh, Kakad, um, to have the credible threat of divergence, you would have to set up independent regulatory agencies in the UK and kind of parallel agencies to what you have in the EU, but they'd all be you know, set up with the cost, with the objective of convergence. How would that work? Well, but I mean, that, that, so, so, so we, have a, have, we have a European Chemicals Agency, or a European British Chemicals Agency, we prepared Euro earlier because we don't like the... European Aviation Safety which. Agency, European Medicals Agency. Well, we, if you're going to have a credible threat of divergence, you have to have an agency in but place. This is, but not, but not, this, is, this is part... part. I, I don't think that's necessarily right, because regulators in Europe don't legislate in the way they do in America, so they tend to sort of authorise 
products we place on the market, but they don't actually legislate. Um, uh, and so the job of legislating and therefore doing things differently is still actually the UK government and the UK parliament. Sorry. That, that is, that is, yeah. that is Not true. Not on things like aviation safety. You see that with the, mm. the European Medicines mm. Agency and, and, and its UK equivalent already today. Mm. I mean, I, 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 don't, I think this is part of the problem, is this mindset of mm. a credible threat, mm. the credible threat of... of um, divergence. That is not the objective. The objective is to work constructively together. Now, one of the consequences of choosing to diverge would be mm. you have to invest in a greater set of structures and administrative competencies. And precisely because you don't want to do that um, is one of the reasons that you would find the agreement would be relatively uh, stable. This is also one of the things that, that, that I found really striking. So we had a, a roundtable with, with David Davis uh, just before Christmas. So we put this out on this idea of alignment as an option and participation membership and sort of set that framework out. And what was so striking to me in that room with, with the sort of heads of 20 other think tanks was the extent to which um, really this was also just a group of people who wanted to do the meddling and the regulating themselves. It was really, it was really striking. It was this sort of slightly weird thing about wanting control. But when you sort of put them on the spot and said, okay, what regulations would you change? There was something about tobacco-free stuff. And there was like, well, some people liked the chemical regulations and some people didn't. But it was really just this impulse and desire to meddle from Whitehall. And it seems that a lot of this instinct has really come from our political class, who've just missed the pleasure of meddling and interfering in every aspect of uh, the UK economy and really want to get back to the joy of regulation, um, which is really bizarre given that the rhetoric is about deregulation and in fact perhaps the real motivation is the joy of regulation. Okay, well that's a very interesting point to end. Thank you very much. Waiting super patiently uh, is, uh, is our final picture. Uh, Sam Lowe. Sam is a research fellow at the Centre for European Reform and founder of the UK Trade Forum, which if, uh, if uh, trade nerds of you are not uh, a co-founder, uh, I have to say because the other co-founders are available, um, uh, she said, looking nervously at the lawyers. Um, so if you're a real trade nerd, that is like Trade Nerd Central, so do look at their website. But Sam, you have five minutes. Can run this slightly over because uh, there have been so many sort of interactions and questions. But Sam, go ahead. The Jersey option. Yes. Uh, thank you, Jill. I must say when I was asked to present this, I was quite nervous because I, I sort of have a long history of arguing with Ali. And, and, and this is a sort of a, an institutionalised structure for her to put me on the spot. So, um, although, although I think we've agreed more than not in, in, in recent times. Yes. Um, I, one of the things I would say is that what I'm proposing is no me by no means better than what exists now. It's the, the obvious option for if things were to remain good, if, if you have that as your baseline, is just to stay in the EU. But, the, but working on the assumption that we're not and that we're going to be poorer than we were were we to remain, we put, I came up with a proposal that I refer to as the Jersey option. More accurately, it should probably be called the Isle of Man option. <laughs> but um, we're starting to run out of Crown dependencies. So, <laughs> so Isle of Man's actually still free. Guernsey's been yeah. taken by George. And the way we approached this, so, so me initially, but then uh, me and my, uh, with my colleague, John Springford, was to ask the question, A, would this work for the UK? B, would it resolve the Irish border? I think that's, that's important. And C, would the EU go, with, go for it? And 
I didn't hear Stephen, so I'm not going to speak to his presentation. I think the answer to C for all of the proposals that have been put forward so far, perhaps except the EA option, although I have some reservations about this, so would the EU go for it, is no. The answer to the question in regards to my option is perhaps. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not claiming it's much, it, it gets as much further. But essentially what I'm proposing is that as... Jersey, as, as, as is Jersey's relationship with the EU right now, we remain in the, comp the customs union or a customs union, I don't mind, as long as it's comprehensive and covers all goods, including agriculture. We also remain in the single market for goods, and this includes not just things that can get tested at the border, but behind the border measures that have in issue, uh, implications for competitiveness. You can essentially get a list of those if you look in the EA agreement, because they're written down there. And we also, and this is why it's more accurately should be referred to as the Isle of Man uh, option, is we also remain in the EU's VAT area because outside of that, VAT becomes a border issue. And this will, in, in regards to services, we get treated as per every other third country. So I'd be expecting agreement similar to what Canada had, maybe an institutionalised structure to discuss equivalent rulings going forward. That's about it. Um, this, this would probably require payments. It would require oversight and dispute resolution sim similar to a sort of quasi-ECJ, so an EFTA court, EFTA defence mechanism for the goods side. And the big question is, would it require freedom of movement? And that's why I'm not sure if the EU would go for it, because what I'm describing is essentially Switzerland without all the multiple arrangements with a customs union. So... Why would the UK go for this, to begin with? A, it removes all of the visible impacts of Brexit. There are no trucks lining up on the way to Dover. The Irish border remains as it is. Manufacturers can stay. Supply chains remain intact. And, as I've already mentioned, it does solve the Irish border issue. Also, why we might go for it? We would have the freedom to regulate our services sector as we see fit. We would also be able to strike trade deals covering services, data, IP, procurement and digital. So in Liam Fox language, the issues of the future, we'd still be able to do that. And there'd probably be a parliamentary majority for an agreement that looked like this. Why would the EU go for this? A, it solves Ireland. I'm going to keep reiterating that. B, there's discussion about whether you can actually carve off goods from the rest of the single market. But I think if you start from a basic level of a customs union, you, you've already done that. And once you've gone into a customs union, uh, you've decided that actually you want to be bonded to each other in the area of goods, and that over time you want to take it forward so as to remove all barriers at the border, because a customs union in and of itself doesn't do that. If you are in the single market for goods... It would, and when you look at Turkey, that's essentially the direction of travel. It's being asked to mm -hmm. transpose uh, European legislation into its own, and that's where it would theoretically eventually end up, but it might take a long time. Um, it also maintains pan-European supply chains. It still gives the UK a kicking, which is important <laughs> because we'd be out for services, and it's still worse than EU membership, and it would still get some money, and it keeps the UK close to it in areas that matter. <laughs> then... As to whether the EU will go for it, the big question is freedom of movement. Would, would they require freedom of movement in such a relationship? 
or would they settle for a preferential migration scheme? And the answer to that is, I do not know, because no, <laughs> no one's asked them yet. Okay, Sam, thank you very much. Is that enough of a job for Liam Fox to go and negotiate some services, digital and things like that, trade agreements, or uh, do many of your objections to Tom's, uh, Tom's proposal still hold with Sam's ideas? Of course they do. There's nothing more to be said. No, I, I think I'm not going to go into details. I'm just going to make some general observations. I think the first thing, obviously, is that whatever you suggest is, is not feasible as far as the government is concerned. Theresa May has made it very clear that we're leaving the customs union and the single market. So as elegant as your exposition was, I'm trying to be flattering, by the way, as elegant as it was, I don't think it's relevant, to be quite frank with you. And the other thing I would say is, would it be compatible with the referendum? And people voted, when they voted back on the 23rd of June 2016, a night I shall never forget, they voted to leave the EU. But here you are saying we should stay in the I'm customs. saying we will have left the EU. Mm. I have satisfied the mandate well, of the I th referendum. I think that would be very questionable. Um, so you've got the general gist that I don't quite agree with where you're going. I expected it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think... On a more specific point, and I know we've talked, we've sort of touched on Ireland quite a lot tonight without actually deciding what the border problem is. And as far as I am, am concerned, it's actually a bit of a mountain out of a molehill. I'm being slightly provocative here to get your reaction. But it does strike me that there's already no reaction. He's a good actor, isn't he? Um, but there is a border already between Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's for excise, and there are spot checks because of the excise, and it's currency, and of course on illegal immigration. If we're out of the customs union, there'd be another factor. And of course, that's a customs border. But it could be electronic, could it not? I mean, you have the trusted trader scheme, and people do uh, pre-declarations of their trade, okay, and then the HMRC just basically waves things through. I mean, isn't the way, that the way the HMRC sees it? OK, so Sam, we're all making too much of a fuss about Ireland. I don't think we are. I think, I think in, it's all well and good to say there's already an excise border. And, and, and that's right. But who gets to decide what a hard border in Ireland looks like? It's not you and me, it's people who live there. And as it stands, they are comfortable with the excise border. If we are to put more on that, but, on but, top of that... But if it's, a, if it's an electronic border... So I'm, Where have you got the idea that an electronic I, border I, I removes the need I for live checks? In, Let's pretend. I can, that I'm, I can guess where. I'm someone, and I live in the Irish Republic. Let's just pretend this is a scenario, and I want to take stuff across the border. So there I am. I'm a trusted trader. I've been uh, sort of worked out, and the HMRC's checked me out. The Irish Customs have checked me out, and I just fill it out on a on a customs form, send it in, off we go. Is if you're a trusted trader. If you're, if you're a trusted, trusted trader. Well, if you're not a trusted trader, you're not a trusted trader, and you shouldn't be trading. But well, that, no, that's, that's not what it means. But if, um, you're a, if you're a registered can, trader, forgive me. Can I give you an example? <laughs> Could I give you an example of why this, why this is an issue? Mm. So, if you are outside of the EU sanitary and phytosanitary regime, if you do not apply it domestically and you do not apply it in regards to imports from third countries, then all of your exports of animal origin have to go via a border inspection post, a certified border mm. inspection post. That is not a generic term. That is a very specific term that means that there is a vet on site. So currently, my solution deals with this because we, we remain in the single market for yes. goods, and by goods I mean everything. But if we were to have different regulatory regimes in regards to imports as well, not just within the island, 
all, all exports of animal origin from Northern Ireland into Ireland, and let's be clear, these go back and forth across the board, you've got milk in Baileys, would have to go via a certified border inspection post. They don't currently exist there. And you can say, oh, we'll do it behind the border. How many miles behind? Do you, 10 miles, 5 miles? Most borders aren't actually on a border because there's rivers there. I think, you, I think you're way out of... I mean, the HMRC would never countenance that. And talking to the That's not HMRC. Excuse me, it's worth talking to the HMRC, and you ask them what, how they envisage this. Of course they do spot checks, but they will do it. I was giving a specific example about yeah. SPS, which is dealt with by yeah. the DEFRA vets. So, so really, you're, are you saying that all our trade with non-EU countries is impossible? No, because I've just described how it so works. How, I'm just saying, saying it involves a hard border. Yeah. Just, it's very just making a mountain out of a mountain. No, I'm just explaining the law to you. Okay. I mean, I'm explaining the rules. I, you can shoot me down for it, but these so, are the rules. So, Ali, Sam's, Sam, you've got a proposal from the IOD which looked not that dissimilar to this, except you excluded agriculture. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I think that's my, my, my big question, and what came out of um, uh, Corbyn's speech yesterday was, um, even if you're saying that the UK does its own negotiations or in parallel alongside the EU ones on everything not covered by this arrangement... Um, I think that under a sort of a, um, in terms of the scope, I, in terms of the scope of what's covered under the Turkish arrangement, I think that's manageable um, in terms of having any potential asymmetry in terms of access because the duties on industrial mm -hmm. goods are so low. Having, having total, opening your market and not getting automatic reciprocal access on agricultural rule tariffs is a big difference. A yeah, big I, difference. I agree. I agree there's, there's a concern there. Just, this was essentially the trade-off between Ireland this is where Ireland dragged agriculture in. And, and I appreciate what you're saying. I think, I think it's difficult. I think we can improve upon Turkey, Turkey and, and their relationship with the European Union in regards to negotiation with third countries insofar as I would agree with the proposals you put forward in your paper. I think you can have an enhanced consultation mechanism. There could also be agreements that, uh, agreement that if the UK negotiates something in parallel, it's implemented at the same time. Um, I think that's as far as you could get. You could never get to a situation where the UK had a veto over European Union trade policy as a non-member. I, 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 well, I guess my point is that if there was any asymmetry in terms of tariff preferences on industrial goods, I think that's particularly since it probably wouldn't last very long since the UK and the EU for the time being have very yeah, similar, similar priorities in terms of target markets they want to negotiate with. Agriculture, I think having any period of time under which you would have the UK's market open and not having reciprocal access I think that you would get actually more issues on a pan um, sort of all island basis to that than you would just about the border, quite frankly. Potentially, they're very loud as, 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 I, as I said at the beginning of this, and I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you on this, the, including agriculture in this model was a trade-off that was mm -hmm. essentially driven by that Irish border. And as I said, this still leaves us worse off than we would have been had we remained, and, mm -hmm. and it still throws up issues. I could, I could also identify quite a few other problems with this model. But um, I, think it's, I think it's resolvable. I don't think the UK will have the same issues as Turkey. We are a bigger economy, and that does play a part. And we also have other levers we can pull internationally. Okay, any questions for Did Sam? Yes, back there. Hi, I'm Sam Gibbs. I'm from the government of Jersey. <laughs> Am I about? To, I nearly Sam, fell off the stage. Don't break the stage. Well, don't break the stage with I'm about to get shot down. No, no, it's it's very nice to hear your presentation. I feel like I know you already because you're all over our press cuts at the moment. Well, so we, we learned something, which is put the name of a, a region or place in or, or, or crown dependency in the title of your name, and you immediately get press coverage. Then. Well, we've tried that for years. <laughs> um, 
two things. I'm, I'm very grateful to you for, for clarifying that it's more of an Isle of Man option because I'm having to wander around Parliament explaining that to other people. But also... Um, <laughs> Sorry. No, no, it's quite all right. <laughs> it gives me an excuse to talk to people. And I'm very lonely in my office. Um, I'd also like to point out the Jersey option, of course, isn't automatically an option for Jersey post-Brexit no. because mm. our relationship depends on the UK's Treaty of Accession. So we're extremely interested in, in all of these <laughs> options. Um, the question I was going to ask, and you've covered it a little bit in previous questions, but... And, and also, I know that you accept that this is not a, a perfect option anyway. Jersey at the moment is, to all intents and purposes, a, a rule taker in the area of goods. We have the UK to represent our interests, but, but to all intents and purposes, that is the case. We adopt EU regulation in this area automatically. Um, and that matters less for us, basically because the volumes aren't massive. They're important sectors, and we want them to continue to have market access, principally for agriculture and fisheries products. But for the UK, which is... You know, a much more significant exporter of goods, that, that is really important. To what extent in the model that you're proposing is there a meaningful consultation mechanism? Or is it really just a consultation mechanism for show? The most you could hope for is uh, what the EEA states have in regards to their consultation on goods. And yes, we would become a rule taker in that area. I would argue that we will remain a rule taker in that area even if we were to extricate ourselves because the EU is going to remain our biggest market for goods by far. And I would imagine that we wouldn't diverge particularly far from the EU model. But because we'd chosen to have the option, all of these border checks will have been imposed. And what's the point of that? So, Sam, what's the point of being in the VAT area? Because you're the only person that's mentioned VAT. So why does that matter? Because VAT is actually a border tax. So if you import something from, say, the US, in order for it to be released into your custody, you actually have to pay the VAT to HMRC before it's released into your custody. It might get dealt with now by FedEx and you end mm. up paying them, but, but, that's, but, that, but, that's, but, that's, but that's the issue. So at the moment, essentially within the VAT, there's probably VAT, VAT lawyers in the room who will, who will correct me, but it's essentially if you're part of the VAT area and you're registered, it essentially gets double counted and you just pay it on, and you just pay it on sale. But once we're outside of that, yeah, it becomes a border tax. It just becomes another border issue to deal with. And, and I was just does I that just mean we have to be a rule taker on VAT structures in the? Well, the issue is I, I don't know because the, the own, there's very few countries. I'm not even sure if it's possible to be in the EU VAT area if you're a non-EU member. So, so, so the only examples is, are the Isle of Man and I think Monaco. Is that right? So, so this is maybe an ambitious bit. I'm, I'm proposing ambition in our future relationships <laughs> with the European Union okay. that maybe we'd have to wait and see. I'd and say, I, I don't know if um, it, it obviously becomes another border issue and that's why mm. it's so mm. substantially It's different. a cash flow issue, it's, right? It's mm. a cash yeah. flow, it, but that's also why it's so substantially yeah. different from having the fact that Northern Ireland and the Republic have different VAT <laughs> regimes. It's, it's completely, it's, the scale of it is different. Mm. Having said that, I think it's one of the less, if you were looking at the trade-offs and what the government could do to mm. mitigate being outside of it, I think it's not as ex existential as the customs question. Yeah. You could have sort of duty deferment cash deferment um, schemes. Uh, the problem is what happens on the other side, but I think that sort of traders can kind of resolve that more directly with each other than they can the customs question. Uh, and there's the ECJ question, issue. because yes. I have never seen a more active area of ECJ jurisdiction as I have on um, VAT. For, for my model to work, Theresa May's red lines would need to shift slightly. And I don't, dis I don't, disagree, with I, I, I don't disagree with you. VAT maybe is more resolvable than others. I was just trying to be helpful and solve as many issues as possible in one go. Okay, excellent. I think we're going to have to call it a day there. So thank you very much to Sam.
ask our two very excellent dragons who've been very engaged throughout, just to give them a sort of brief summary of having heard all that array of options. We've got other options. You've put on forward your own options. Ali's got forward an IOD option. We've got the Jeremy Corbyn option. We've got the Theresa May option to come. You know, what's your verdict about where we where we end up, Ruth? Quick two Mine's sentences. the Jeremy Corbyn option. No, it's not. <laughs> um, I think it's been a fascinating evening, and I thank everybody for doing their presentations. I really do. But I know I've said this already tonight. We are where we are. And the fact is that we have said that Theresa May said we've leave the customs union, we'll leave the single market, so we have to move on from there. And we've been talking about the three buckets of regulation, etc., etc., and that's where the government will want to go. But I think, to be realistic, we have to think, by the end of this year, and as Barnier is forever telling us, the clock is ticking, he wants to have the transition agreement agreed, and he also wants the future framework to be agreed. And I'm optimistic, I'm still optimistic, at the end of the day, pragmatism will out, and there will be some sort of agreement based on a free trade agreement, as you were saying, Stephen, tariff-free trade, and perhaps something on financial services based on regulatory equivalents. But the truth is, it's all up for grabs. Of course, it's all got to be negotiated by the EU and the UK, but I think provided they sort of approach the whole thing in a positive attitude, by the end of this year, we will have a very, very good idea as to what the future relationship will be with the European Union. And I personally hope it will be a very friendly one. Okay, Ali. Um, I hope that's the case. I think if you're looking at it from a business perspective, it's uh, very difficult for me to tell our members to go and look at speeches and try and deduce what the change is going to be. Um, and I would probably actually echo that for um, the framework. I don't know if it's going to be detailed enough to give people an idea of what changes they need to make um, uh, and when. I was really struck, actually, and I'm sure some of the people who spoke and pitched will disagree with this. I was struck by, actually, one of the narratives running through this is effectively, um, we'll make the judgment call as and when. That's not a question for now that was running through a lot of the presentations. I think actually I've heard David Davis say something mm. effectively similar. His job is to allow to secure the freedoms, not to make the decisions about when to actually diverge. So I think that's actually maybe quite a, a unifying sort of statement. I still think that poses big issues for well, what do you have? What, what happens the minute that you diverge? Uh, and I think one of the things mm. that's been probably missing from a lot of the discussion, not just here but generally, is what is the extent of the regulatory cooperation mechanisms, leaving aside the dispute resolution mm. side, that underpins all of this because. I think in some ways we will be having to work with the EU more closely than we ever did before to make this work. Okay. Um, and I really hope that the UK doesn't just respond to EU proposals and puts its own on the table. Okay, that's a great point to end. So thank you all very much for coming. If you want to see any, we haven't pitched any uh, IFG work here tonight, but we do have our publication, uh, which does sort of almost mention three baskets, but uh, as one of four possible options, a trade after Brexit that we uh, published in December. So do go onto our website, read that and follow our stuff. Uh, could you thank all our excellent panelists and our excellent dragons?